From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Instead of spending time just being children and staying focused on school, many kids who lived in underserved neighborhoods like Kensington and Frankfurt are more concerned about where their next meal is coming from or whether or not they'll return home safely to their families. Author and sociologist Nikhil Goyle followed the lives of three students and documented their struggles as they end up at El Centro de Estudiantes, an alternative public high school. His new book is Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty. We sit down with Goyle and the three students he followed to hear their stories. Philadelphia public school system failed me. If it wasn't for El Centro, I probably wouldn't be a high school graduate. Charity Howard hits the streets to ask voters what they want from their 100th mayor. Spend the resources on the residents and take it away from downtown. All that and more on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Nikhil Goyle is a sociologist and policymaker. He served as senior policy advisor in education for children for Senator Bernie Sanders for two years. Here in Philadelphia, he spent about a decade researching and reporting on life for young people in Kensington, one of the most impoverished neighborhoods in America. His new book is titled Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty. In this book, he gives us a snapshot of the lives of three young people struggling to survive in Kensington, and they join Nikhil today. Welcome, Nikhil, Ryan, Karem, and Giancarlos. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks. Thank you. Hey. <laughs> All right, let's first start off uh, talking with you, Nikhil, about the book. Why exactly did you decide to delve into Kensington to take a look at how poverty affects children? So I was interested in examining the high school dropout crisis and a friend named Andrew Frischman, who runs an organization called Big Picture Learning, had suggested a number of schools for me to visit. And one of them was El Centro de Estudiantes, um, an alternative last chance high school in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. Um, And I thought I was going to write a story, interview some students and teachers, um, but it ended up snowballing into a much larger project. Uh, both an ethnographic study as part of my graduate studies, and then this book, Live to See the Day. Right, right. Why did you select these three young people to profile in the book? So as part of the larger ethnographic study, I interviewed hundreds of students who attended El Centro and other alternative schools in uh, in the area. Um, and I was trying to understand their lives, educational experiences, um, and their thoughts and aspirations for the future. Um, and for the book, the, you know, in narrative nonfiction, there's a, a tradition where you tend to focus on one character or three characters mm-hmm. to illustrate larger problems at play. Um, and I think each of their stories provide insight into a variety of systems and institutions in Philadelphia, whether it is the juvenile justice system, the issues of poverty and housing insecurity. Um, as well as the quest to get a high school diploma in the face of great odds. Yeah. Would you say you unearthed more than you thought you would doing this research? Oh, of course. It was revelatory. Um, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for these young people and their families and uh, the staff and educators at El Centro de Estudiantes for spending time with me for over all these years for dealing with many of my annoying questions. Um, and, I, you know, when I started this research 
uh, in 2015, I really could not have imagined it becoming what it is today. Um, and so the the insights that I learned um, have profoundly shaped my understanding of poverty and inequality in America mm-hmm. and shaped my uh, future policymaking. Yeah, this definitely puts faces and real life experiences to what people often see as just flashes on their television screens. So that's why I think a lot of people will appreciate this. What I'd like to do is kind of go around and get to know our uh, guests that are featured in the book and get into your stories, and then we'll kind of explore even more. We'll start with Ryan. In the book, uh, Nikhil describes a couple of incidents that you had when you were in school getting arrested for a, a trash fire that started at school, and then even for selling some inappropriate materials uh, at school, and you were just a kid, and I believe that uh, the law enforcement was called in, so that must have been pretty scary for you at that point. Well, yeah, it was a uh, it was traumatic back then. Even now, when I think about it now, I couldn't imagine uh, one of my children going through something like that. Um, you know, being questioned uh, by police without a guardian or my parents around, being forced to answer questions. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was just something. I went through, I guess, you know, had to go through for a reason. Right, right. And Nikhil, his experience, you know, with uh, law enforcement, that's not new for kids uh, in Kensington. That's, I don't want to say it's a rite of passage, but we see it more than we don't see it. Sure. Yeah, as Ryan was talking about, you know, when he was in middle school, he started a fire in a trash can. Mm -hmm. And instead of him being given care and mentoring and counseling, um, he was interrogated, arrested, and funneled through the juvenile justice system and criminalized. And too many African-American and Puerto Rican and working class kids across the city um, are treated as potential criminals. And, and that is just fundamentally unjust. Um, and so I think Ryan's story illustrates the experiences that many young people have within the public system, school system, um, as well as the perseverance and the resilience many of them have to get out of that crisis. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit to uh, Giancarlos. Now, I know that you were quite the activist at a young age. Uh, tell us about what led to you leading a walkout at school. So what brought me, so the organization was called Youth United for Change. Mm-hmm. Um, my godmom at the time was um, the like chairwoman at the time, I guess, like the person in charge of it. Like, um, sure. So... She just brought it to me to like see if I wanted to like check it out for like a summer project. It was like a week, two week thing, right? Um, a leadership training, and um, I liked the stuff I learned, and then it, it intrigued me in joining the um the program. And um, after that, I would I just got so into it. Like I'm like, yo, like why aren't there like so many programs like over Philly? Which there were, I just didn't know about them, you know. And um, first we went to like the SRC for like this meeting, like um. We kind of, like, uh, forced uh, Dr. Height to, like, hear us. And um, then we had the walkout. Like, the the walkout was at eighth grade, like, kind of understanding, but not really understanding because I wasn't in high school yet, like, dealing with these things. And um, I just knew I wanted to support the cause. And, um, like, even though it was the high schoolers' fight at the time, like, we were up next, you know, so my goal at that time was to let the eighth graders and seventh graders around me, it was Conwell, uh, I was telling all my friends, like, bro, we, we're going to high school next, like, we don't fight for what we want now, we're going to have an uncomfortable high school experience, hmm. which, yeah, I mean, I did as much fight as I can, but my high school experience wasn't the best, 
kind of until I got to El Centro, like El Centro hooked it up. Right. You know I mean, made it better. Right. Understand. What's going on with you now? Oh, man. <laughs> so um, I just want to bring up after I graduated El Centro, um, with the help of my teacher, uh, Doug, at the time and um, the principal at the time, they helped me do a study abroad program. I got to go to Cuba and Nicaragua mm. and study um, like music, art and social change. Uh, I had a wonderful time out there. I came back with a mindset of going to college and doing music and stuff. And I do do music still. Uh, I got a big project coming out in the beginning of next year. Just real focused on that. But I've been working. Um, I didn't end up going to college. I ended up meeting um, my girlfriend, Jennifer, and we ended up having two kids together. Uh, okay. I got my own um, home renting right now, but... Uh, Hopefully by the beginning of next year, I'll be mortgaging through the First Philly Homebuyers Program. Great. Um, just doing whatever I can now to basically have a good life with my family and just grow from there. Like um, after all, Centro, uh, I was an intern with uh, Marston House Recording for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, they're like a known studio on Ninth and Dolphin. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I just like really just wanted to work on myself. Like. I'm going to go to college eventually, but I just want to make sure my kids are, like, situated enough trying to get my music there, you know. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 103.9 FM. Karem, share with us your story from what I understand. Um... And, you know, a lot of these stories, Nikhil, I know we're, we're trying to condense everything, but this is a snapshot at what a lot of young people kind of struggle with. This is normal things, making decisions, uh, some influences on the outside to influence you. And, you know, coming of age means sometimes exploring sexuality. In your case, Karim, that didn't go over well with your mother in particular. Tell us your story. Yeah, so, hi everyone, my name is Karim, happy to be on the show. Um, I feel like my story starts out at a very young age. I think I remember exploring my queerness, or at least having the thought of being queer, when I was in first grade, and having my first crush on another boy. Okay. And just also internalizing and being like, oh my god, this is wrong, because I grew up in a very religious household. Um, my family grew up Pentecostal. And Pentecostalism is like a form of Christianity that's very popular in Caribbean um, islands like Puerto Rico, Trinidad, areas like that. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of that, you know, my family struggled with a lot of housing insecurity growing up, um, just being poor. My mom was disabled, so I grew up a lot of the times on just an SSI check from my mom. And at the time, I believe that she was getting $643 a month to sustain her and three kids, which was hard. Um, my brothers were sent to foster care. Um, and just growing up, it was me and my mom just on our own trying to, like, make ends meet. And so at one point, this led to me developing not only issues with my queer identity, but also just struggling with mental health and mental illness and being very depressed to the point where I didn't want to go to school anymore. 
And I would argue with my mom every single day. She would be like, go to school, go to school, go to school. And I would be like, I just can't get out of bed Mm -hmm. and not understanding what it is. Right. And my mom not understanding what it is, because for her, like mental illness is something that can just be fixed by God. Right. So I, I spent a lot of time like struggling with that and dropping out of school and then finally finding El Centro. And when I came out to my mom, actually, I was 16 years old and she completely flipped out. She was like, what are you doing? This is against the Bible. This is against this and that. And I felt so heartbroken that it led me to run away. And then the rest of my high school career, I was struggling with homelessness. So the whole last year that I was at El Centro, I had nowhere to live. And I was like living in shelters, Wow, which was crazy. But I did it. And, you know, I went to college and now I'm working at El Centro. So... I did a complete, you know, 360 of my life just being dedicated to changing myself and and who I am and also like pursuing my passion with music and starting to DJ now and just getting myself out there um, and just like, you know, putting the pieces of my puzzle together now. Good for you. Good for you. And how old are you? I'm 26 right now. You're 26 and you still young. Absolutely, <laughs> and living living the life. That's awesome. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And for you, Ryan, what have you been doing since all of that that happened when you were young? How are things? How have things turned around for you? Um, well, so you know, uh, El Centro was really a godsend. Um, high school, well, Philadelphia public school system, I feel like failed me. If it wasn't for um, El Centro, I probably, I probably wouldn't be a high school graduate. Mm. Like I'm sure uh, these two can also attest to. Um, so graduating El Centro or on the road to graduation, you know, we had to get an internship. And what helped me and turned me around was um, getting the internships because they, they really put it in you to get an internship that, uh, of something that you enjoyed or um, something that you wanted to do in your life. So um, I wanted to be a, p- a police officer at one point. So uh, I was like, maybe I get an internship at a, a police district. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out. So I was like, well, next best thing, the courthouse, CJC, right? right. I went, I got an internship with a judge in um, Common Police Court. And uh, my last year of high school, I was his intern. I graduated El Centro. I decided to still work, work with him, volunteer um, for him for free. And then um, it turned into employment. And uh, I became a city employee through him, a personal assistant to Judge Rayford Means. He's now retired, but I worked for him all together uh, with the internship and on the city's payroll for about nine years, eight years. Mm-hmm. Now I work with kids. I'm a youth advocate. Great. There were kids who are in the system, who have pending charges, open cases, or on house arrest. Right. And of course, when you talk to them and you tell them your experience, they can, they can probably better relate to you and... You can probably better help them. Well, you know, I had a good mentor. I don't really uh, preach to kids, and I really don't uh, give kids my experience with the system. Mm. That doesn't help them. Okay. I uh, I talk to them. I, I meet them where they're at, but I don't want to glorify what I've been through or what I did. So I don't really talk about my story with them. These are three success stories, Nikhil, and um, it, it sounds as though, you know, it took intervention 
for the three of them to kind of turn a page. Tell me about more of how they got hooked up with El Centro and why this made a difference in their lives. So each of them came to El Centro in a different way. And it was remarkable to interview them and hear about their previous school experiences. You know, Ryan, for example, had attended a for-profit alternative disciplinary school called Community Education Partners, where he had to walk uh, into school, was had to go through a metal detector, was frisked by a security officer, um, and then had to walk with his hands behind his back uh, into a classroom every day um, where there was fighting and violence and uh, very little formal instruction. And so the experience of a lot of students before they came to El Centro was one where they went to underfunded violent schools that uh, didn't give them the tools and knowledge necessary to become citizens and, and adults. And I think what El Centro uh, provided them were a, a number of really key things. One was small classes, an advisory model where they built really strong relationships with their teachers and counselors, um, an internship approach where they could spend time not just in the school building, but out in the real world, in the community, in the city of Philadelphia. It was just remarkable to me to hear students uh, explain how they often never left a one or two mile radius of their homes. They never spent time in downtown center city unless they were going to court or seeing their probation officer or you know going down to South Philly to see the Phillies play. But apart from that, they had not seen a city that was just as much their city as anybody else's. Um, and so those internships, I think, were very eye-opening for students to realize that there was an entire world outside of Kensington and North Philadelphia for them to be a part of. And then on top of that, I think the exhibition style of assessment, uh, restorative justice practices, you know, a lot of these young people have dealt with zero tolerance school discipline, getting suspended, expelled, mm, yeah. transferred to a disciplinary school, uh, treated again as criminals, not as full fledged human beings with rights. And so to come to El Centro where they were treated with autonomy, they were trusted and had agency, uh, I think made them uh, realize that there was another world was possible for themselves. And I, you know, talking to Giancarlos and, and his experience at his previous high schools where he was pushed out of school in large part due to his activism as well as various um, disciplinary issues he got into. Um, and then coming to El Centro where he worked directly with teachers you know, like Doug and others who were not just teachers and educators, but were social workers, counselors. When he lost a um, uh, his best friend to gun violence, Doug made sure that he was okay, that he would bring him food uh, and and make sure that he was coming to school. Other times where students were uh, hungry, Doug would send Uber Eats to them, do their laundry when they didn't have access to a laundromat. So these teachers went above and beyond working off of meager uh, starvation wages, frankly, compared to other professions and uh, were the world to these kids. Thank God for El Centro. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, I'm thinking of of the American education system and kids in impoverished areas. And I'm wondering if we have some kind of a blind spot. Are are we failing kids in these areas specifically, not honing in and looking at some of the problems and and things that may be going on in the background? I mean, these kids spend more time oftentimes in school than they do at home. And you have administrators and teachers who kind of see what's happening but not intervening and giving them, you know, the the resources and the the special attention that they need. 
I think it's important to recognize that schools are not isolated institutions. They don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within a larger political economy. Right. That when a child comes to school, the issues of homelessness and housing insecurity and hunger and lack of health care, you know, even just having eyeglasses, um, issues of food insecurity and um, toxic stress and trauma, those don't get left behind when you walk into school. That gets carried into the classroom. It affects one's ability to learn and collaborate and function within that educational environment. And so I think uh, the sooner this country recognizes that we need to make the investments in our social safety net, uh, in our economy, to provide everyone with a decent standard of living and economic security, then we're not really going to get at the root cause of these problems. And schools... Um, cannot do it on their own. We cannot burden schools with the responsibility of solving social problems that were not of their making. Why did you choose this particular age group to focus on? I've been writing a lot about public education and children uh, before I started this project. And I felt that in the discussions around poverty and educational inequality, uh, we did not do enough as a country to center the lives of children in our narratives. And it's this type of work is extremely difficult. It is exhaustive work. It takes a toll on researcher on the researcher. And uh, trying to work with kids, I think, is something that requires a concerted effort. But I felt that there were these stories uh, were incredibly important in their own right, but ones that policymakers, educators, and the public needed to hear uh, if we're going to change the conditions in in Kensington yeah. and 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 the Kensingtons across this country. What are some things that could be done legislatively to help kids in these impoverished areas thrive? So when I was working on this project, in the middle of it, I had an opportunity to work at the United States Senate for Senator Bernie Sanders. And we worked on a piece of legislation called Build Back Better. Um, and that would have provided a cradle-to-grave social democratic uh, country in a variety of ways. And just, just think about the various challenges that these young people encountered during their childhoods. Um, take an issue like poverty. We worked on uh, making permanent the expanded child tax credit. Karam talked a little bit about uh, their experience uh, living in poverty and relying on SSI. They and their mother had to live off of less than $10,000 a year. Mm. Deep, deep poverty. Um, and imagine if Karam and Ryan and Giancarlos had access to the expanded child tax credit when they were children where their mothers and their fathers and their their guardians would have access to uh, and receive $250 a month or $300 a month, depending on their age, which would have lifted them out of poverty and economic insecurity. It would have meant that they would have been able to have healthier, more productive childhoods, that they wouldn't have struggled as much. Um, so it's important for me to connect their individual stories, agency, with social structure and policy, because... The conditions that exist in Kensington did not come about by accident. They didn't come out of thin air. They came as a result and a product of decades and centuries of public policies that said that we're going to subject certain people to inequality and pain and suffering. And we're going to subject other people to well-funded schools and public institutions and happy childhoods. Um, I think it's, it's an outrage that in this country... Some people are subjected to premature death and other people are subjected to uh, decent, thriving lives. Um, and I think that is the fundamental question that we must um, grapple with as a country. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, we're just giving you a snapshot. Uh, you have to definitely get into the book. I mean, the, the kids in Kensington dealing with everything from, you know, incarceration, physical assault, sexual abuse, um, drug involvement, uh, gun uh, conflicts and things of that nature. Um, and it should not be something that is a rite of passage for any for any child. And, you know, it's so easy for people to pass judgment. It really is just to say, oh, these are just bad kids and not looking at the underlying structures that brought their outcomes to what they were. So I think that this book is definitely something that people can uh, can come away with um, putting faces to these flashes that we see on our screens. Absolutely. And, and I, I would just say that listen to children, listen to young people, yeah. because they are the experts. They know what's happening in their communities they may not always have you know, the full theoretical language to describe things, but their lived experiences are incredibly powerful um, and in, should inform public policy. You know What they endured, whether it was Giancarlo dealing with underfunded schools or Ryan dealing with uh, the drug trade or, or the criminalization of the juvenile justice system or, or Emmanuel, now known as Karem, dealing with housing insecurity and evictions. Children should not have to endure this, these conditions. Um, and we as a country... Uh, we have the wealth and resources to provide everyone with a decent life. Um, I always cite the National Academy study, which found that the annual cost of child poverty is ranges from $800 billion to $1.1 trillion a year. That is money taken out of all of our pockets. Yeah. Whether you are rich, middle class, or poor, all of us are affected in the form of higher crime, higher spending on public assistance programs, and lower economic productivity. So even if you don't care about child poverty, even if you think this is not a real problem, uh, the reality is that if we don't solve this crisis, then our economy is going to suffer. Your bottom line as a consumer, as an American, as a taxpayer, uh, you are going to suffer. Um, and we're going to allow millions of children to live in conditions that uh, should not exist in this country. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Well, I tell you what, Karem, Giancarlo, and Ryan, you're all of voting age, and we are about to elect our 100th mayor of Philadelphia. I'm going to give you the floor. Tell me what you would like to tell the next mayor of Philadelphia based on what you all experienced in Kensington growing up and everything that you've experienced. What should the next mayor pay attention to? I guess for me, it's fund our schools, make sure that we uplift youth and provide platforms for students to be leaders within their own communities and to share their stories um, and also give access to their networks, right, and building professional opportunities for students when they're young, um, like what happened for me, Giancarlos and Ryan, with the internship program at El Centro. It really uplifted us and helped us in our career now, definitely making sure that each student here in Philadelphia has an opportunity for professional growth early on. Got it. I was always told there's no such thing as a bad kid. It's only a bad parent or a bad mentor. I mean, when you... When you bring a kid into this world, I mean, you you got to understand that this child's life is going to be based around yours. They grow up watching you right. and they grow up watching their surroundings. So the more love we show to our surroundings, the more better that child's life will be. Like if my kid was to be in the streets selling drugs one day or have a gun in their hands, I failed as a parent. 
which wouldn't be the case. I live every day to make sure that my kid doesn't ever have to go down that road. But to the new mayor, uh, there needs to be more investing into these child's lives, like whether it's helping them, guide them to go into college, whether it's making sure kids get into internships like how El Centro does so they can build that resume. You got kids at 16 years old, 17 years old, desperate on working, but can't get a job because they have no resume, not knowing they can get an internship before they go looking for that job. Um, it's a bunch more. You need to be more cracked down on the cops that aren't doing anything, that that are just pulling up by construction sites sleeping just because there's so much gentrification come, going on. I get, I get there's going to be new buildings and new stuff coming out, but... Let the let the like workers who are doing that handle that. These these police need to be close close to our schools. You got you got parents dropping off their kids and then their kids texting them like, Oh, there was a gun in our school. There was this in our school. They were shooting in front of our school. I mean, like how Nick said earlier, I had a best friend lost in the gun violence. His birthday was a couple of days ago. Mm. In my head, I had a whole life with him, you know? It's a bunch of kids going through that right now. After I lost him, swear to you not, I lost someone every year. Oh, my goodness. And it's like some of that to the streets, some of that natural causes, like getting older and stuff. Okay. It's just a simple fact that's going to happen for the rest of my life. It's always going to be a funeral to pay for, and I shouldn't have to feel like that. And I don't want kids growing up feeling like that, you know? Yeah. Um, politics is a tricky game. I would say no comment, but I mean, <laughs> um, all I'm going to say is safer streets and safer schools. I think uh, some funding for schools, um, for youth outside of school as well. Like they had work ready for summer jobs. I think work ready should be all year round. Yes, sir. A lot of these kids want jobs. A lot of these kids that I work with, you know, they're in the system, but they complain about being in the system, but they also want to come with me because they don't got nothing else to do. They're like, I want to go with you, Mr. Ryan. Come get me. Wow. A lot of people going to disagree with me on this one, but, you know, funding the police. Yeah. That's the only way we're going to have safer streets. Understand. Thank you. Thank you all for your comments. And uh, the name of the book is called Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty. Nikhil Goyle is the author of the book. Thank you so much. And you can learn more about the lives of Karim, Giancarlos, and Ryan in that book and as a matter of fact thank all three of you for coming and sharing your stories today thank you thank you thank you it was lovely bridging philly continues in a moment back to bridging philly connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you Ending gun violence, improving public transportation, and increasing recycling are just some of the voter issues Philadelphians hope the next mayor will address. Shara Day Howard shares voices from around the city on the latest Shara in the City. Philly wants it, Philly's got it, but first you gotta cast those ballots for the city's 100th mayor on November 7th. So I asked Philly who are people voting for and why, and what should be at the top of the next mayor's to-do list. So I hit some parks and hotspots throughout the city. I caught up with Jeremiah Thompson, the conga man outside of Reading Terminal, 
He's an avid voter and says Philly wants change, and with either David O or Sherelle Parker, Philly's gonna get it. But the Kunga man, he says he's voting for Miss Parker. What should the next mayor be focused on? Women's rights. Yeah, the right to do whatever they want to do with their bodies, you know, the right to have equal pay for, you know, the work that they do in the work field. And who better than? Than a woman. <laughs> I endorse her. <laughs> so then I ventured into Reading Terminal at the Down Home Diner, where I ran into Sherry Willis, who just got back from Oakland, California, where she says even across the country, they're suffering from the same problems, violence, poverty, but Philly, she says, as her hometown, it's got a lot to work on, and that next mayor, it's got to hop to it. So I'm very used to big cities having issues with crime, very used to homelessness as being a major issue, and affordable housing, of course. So I think these are themes from coast to coast, and Philly is grappling with answers just like every other major city. And her suggestion to the next mayor. Spend the resources on the residents and take it away from downtown. You know, mayors tend to really focus on the financial centers, center cities, and not spread the wealth into neighborhoods. I think that's a very common thing with urban areas. And then I caught up with Clinton Rome from West Philly, and he says, you know, he's looking at Sherelle Parker's playbook, and she's got some good moves. All right, so the mayor's race is coming up. Mm -hmm. And we got Sherelle Parker, we got mm -hmm. David O. That's the big matchup. What are your thoughts? I think Sherelle Parker brings a lot to the table. I think uh, I like what Sherelle Parker talks about for the community. You know, David O, he may be just as good, but I don't know. I just feel more comfortable with Sherelle Parker. And either way, he says, Philly's going to be making history for the 100th mayor. It's either going to be a black woman or an Asian American. Change for the better. In that respect, he says they both offer something beneficial to all Philadelphia communities. Him being Asian, I'm sure he would probably do a good for a lot of the community, whether it be African-American community, white community, Asian, Hispanic community, what have you. Then I took a trip out to West Philly where I ran into Diane and the issue with youth and violence she's never seen so bad in Philly and wants the next mayor to tackle not only street violence but to give youth a purposeful place in the community. And she believes because Sherelle Parker is both a woman and a mother she has a unique perspective and might be the perfect person for the job. Something different and you hope you know she get you know things pretty much done. Right and yeah. what do you think needs to be done most? What needs to be number one on her list? Crime. And I think maybe a curfew for some of these kids out here. So, I mean, a lot of change is happening. Yeah. We need a mayor who's going to step up. And they need more activities for these kids after school. They have nothing else to do. Right. They're closing down rec centers, exactly. all these community They've centers. Been doing that because they had nothing else better to do. Now, what about Sherelle Parker? What do you think she can bring to the table that's different than what O or anybody else could bring? Well, I think because she has a, a, a son, too. And she probably knows this. So she could be more of a help. Taylon Myers from Germantown says Diane may be on to something. He agrees. Women just bring something special to the table. Now the 100th mayor could be a woman, a black woman at that. How do you feel about that? I feel great about that because this country needs women of power, especially of uh, African-American descent. I really would like that because we don't see too many, and even women in general, we don't get to see that much. And they're just supporting. They can do the same job as everyone knows. And I would really like to see that. They are very, very caring. And I'm a parent myself, so, you know, they like to see both sides of the story. They're very much in control, and me personally, I'd rather <laughs> take orders from women because 
I have a higher power, and I believe it's a woman, so they're pretty solid, especially, you know, my mom. She was tough and a single mother, so, you know, I, I wouldn't be opposed of a woman being in charge and in power because we need that. The next mayor, what should be at the top of their list? The top of the list has to be um, gun violence, I would say. Guns off the streets and making sure our women are safe. That has to be the top. And he said for good measure, the transportation system in Philadelphia needs a lot of work. To, to be honest with you, SEPTA is the worst day. The only reason why I'm on SEPTA right now is because my car is in the shop. But I, I can't, I think it's probably the one of the worst transportation systems in America because I've been out Florida, I've been out Georgia. It was never like that. It's really bad. So he says it's an easy fix. One, two, three. The transportation system is, 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 is all you need to do to me. I think they should lower the fare. And I also think that they should run a little bit more frequently. Yes, and way better security. Okay, so we addressed number one, violence in the city. Kids, youth having something to do. And SEPTA, the transportation system needs to be improved. But we have another perspective. Lily from the Mount Airy Germantown section says, what about climate change? Oh man, it's hard because it feels like there's so many things that need to be done. One of the big things is that we don't recycle a lot. <laughs> like, it's just so wasteful. And I, I've like seen trucks put both the trash and the recycling in and it's just like our climate's already suffering so much that I mean other cities have like systems and like you know they can put the cans and get some change back like that's the kind of thing we need. Lily says there's some way to do this but the way we're doing it ain't working. Exactly. Yeah. It's definitely. not working at all. And although she says David O has some good things to say, she believes Sherelle Parker might have better insight into what the future for our children should look like. I think that women, they think about children and how they're affected by their environment. They're not so focused on the monetary stuff, they're focused on caring, so that's what I would like. Election day is November 7th. Now go out and cast that ballot. Thank you so much for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>